0: everybody. Uh, Thank you for listening to the TransUnion podcast. Really excited to bring this episode to you today. It's a roundup of insights from our recent TransUnion Future Summit held in 2023. My name's Harriet Sloan. I head up the Fraud and ID Consultancy and Analytics team here at TransUnion. And this episode that we're sharing with you today is from the Fraud and Identity panel, which I happened to be on at the summit. Alongside my esteemed colleagues, Chad Reimers, uh, UK Fraud and ID General Manager, Glenn Collishaw, Head of Pre-Sales for Fraud and ID in the UK, and our partner, Devon Smith from NeuroID, who are the provider of our behavioural analytics solutions. So the panel title was A Modern Identity Crisis, How the Digital Age Blurs the Lines Between Trust, Risk and Authenticity, So we were exploring really this kind of conundrum that bad actors have got access to an increasingly sophisticated toolkit of technology and personal information is more available online than it ever has been before. And what this means is the fraudsters can show up more than ever looking like genuine customers. So establishing trust and detecting risk is becoming increasingly challenging. So in the session, myself and the rest of the leadership team discuss what organisations must focus on to try and level this playing field out and how you can do that to transact with more confidence.
1: Harriet, I'll come to you first in terms of when you see some of that perception of awareness, how does that link back to some of the items you're seeing and observing in in our broader, um, I guess, consumer perspectives?
0: Yeah so I mean it's I think the the education space for for fraud has really been accelerated by um the proliferation of scams that we saw from the from the pandemic I think there was just such a broad range of you know frankly quite horrible and hideous um, ways to try and scam people that that came about during that time um, that I think it's really brought it to the top of the mind of, of the consumer more than ever before and as a result of that obviously you know a lot of you guys in the room um, and other businesses are trying to do more um, to educate consumers around what those scams look like what other types of fraud looks look like and you know there's, there's got to be success within that, right like you know that has to be having a positive impact because the amount of effort that's going in but I guess it's it's still evolving. So the question for me is, you know, okay, what does that awareness look like? What are consumers aware of? Um, how broad is it? Where are the gaps? Um, and the the poll survey insight. We just click on chat. Yeah. The pulse survey insight that I really liked to um, to try and articulate this was was this one here. So consumers were all asked to rank, you know, what fraud types are of concern to them. Um, it's just interesting to see how. That trend differs from from generation. So, you know, you can see there's a real bias in the the baby boomer population towards fraud typologies that would have been more prevalent to them for a bigger part of their lives, like email phishing, for example. Um, Whereas we zoom down to gen, I can't remember if it's gen Z Z or Z at this stage. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I keep hearing different ones today. Gen Z, uh, you know, they are, have got a, a more balanced awareness across different fraud types. Which, of course, we'd we'd understand um, and, and would make sense um, given given their exposure to these these types of education that have been around in the last few years. But I guess you know, okay. So consumers are concerned about fraud, but are they concerned enough? And are they concerned about the types of fraud that they might be more susceptible to? Um, so I think it's. I would say that we, we've made a big leap in consumer awareness and education, and it's something that everybody in this room and and beyond are putting a lot more effort into. Um, but it's now that that next stage, and for me, it's it, it's delving into these kind of next layers to understand, like I say, where the gaps are. So, like you know, an example of of this that we've been looking at um, over the last year or so is is, is with, with with regards to scams um, and, and and mules as well, actually. But you know, they're hard things to you can't decline someone at point of application or close someone's account in anticipation of them potentially becoming a scam victim. So how do you educate potential pots of scam victims um, sufficiently to try and head off that risk Um, and then you've got a concern around you know customer journey and customer experience because you can't just be firing education out left right and centre to everybody that has to be managed as well so I think you know yeah big leaps in consumer awareness and education um, but it's really about getting to that next layer of it now and saying okay well how can we tailor that to specific customers um, and and what does that look like Um, but that's the fraud awareness angle, so uh, consumers are aware of fraud types and of becoming a victim of fraud. The other angle that I think is also quite interesting is more around: are they aware of fraud controls? And uh, that might sound a bit of a random, uh, you know, a bit weird thing to say, and you think, of course they're not. But we had this discussion at our client advisory board back in July um, because one of our previous poll surveys had a really interesting stat where um, I think they were asked to rank when choosing a company to to transact with, what's the most important factor for you? Now, if you'd have asked me that, I'd have said customer journey um, or quality of goods or services or uh, value or something like that. The top one by at least half was security of personal data you know, so if you think, okay, well, that's top of mind for consumers. Um, and that's something that they're, you know, the way that they're choosing businesses that they interact with. So you know, actually, is that an opportunity? You know, are, are consumers interested in uh, the level of fraud protection that certain businesses have? And is that something that they'd actually taken to consideration with when choosing who to work with? Um, but when, when we was discussing this at the cab, there was then a uh, something raised by someone in the room, um, I think might even be here today, um, where they suggested that the, this Gen Z, uh, Z population who are more aware of different fraud types and are maybe more aware of fraud controls as well, that that might actually breed like a level of complacency um, within within that population where they almost, you know, they understand behavioural analytics, for example, they know that there is technology out there that can track the way that they're interacting with a a registration form because they're more akin to those types of technologies, but they almost have a bit too much trust in it then. And they're like, well, you know, I know all of this is going on in the background, therefore, of course, my account's secure. And it's just not a lens I'd necessarily thought of before. And I think, you know, we do need to continue with consumer education and awareness. There's so much more we can do. Um, and I think that segmentation is a big part of it and understanding where the awareness sits. But I think it's also not just awareness of of fraud types and being a victim. It's also awareness of controls and prevention.
1: Jevon, um, Harriet spoke about those generational differences, particularly around expectations of experience. Mm-hmm. So what are you seeing in that regard? Particularly, how you're you're seeing sort of from a behavior and, and integrate or interaction with the client journey. How are you seeing that differ between generations?
2: It's a it's it's a really inter- interesting question. And and so as I answer that, uh, I'd ask you to consider two things. Right. So Gen Z, uh, watch that. Uh, see uh, Gen Z, Gen Z, right? The younger generations. They're very digitally literate. They, uh, as Harriet said, they expect when they apply for a loan or a credit card that the technology in the background is going to let them through, and when they're subjected to step ups or additional verification, it's frustrating, and it, you know, because of impatience, frankly, they uh, drop off, and that kills conversion. Now, keeping that example in mind, we think of older generations or generations that may sometimes be less digitally literate, and they go on to apply for a loan or on- online or a credit card, and as they're navigating this form, uh, they are subjected to additional layers of friction over and over again and now their frustration is is caused by a different source But if you look at this from a behavioral perspective, it's two sides of the same coin, which is somebody's going to apply for a loan or whatever it may be and for some reason they're being subjected to uh, Just levels of friction. They they don't expect and it it, it frankly leads to significant drop-off and when you look at this from a behavioral perspective and you look at how a genuine user interacts with a form. So these clicks, taps, swipes, hundreds of signals that make up the body language that they're exhibiting as they apply for this loan, we see the same thing, which is frustration. And now that New top of funnel data sources like behavior are visible to us. We we can see clearer than we ever have before. We can reduce those friction, those levels of friction for different le- generations. And at the end of the day, oh, sorry. <laughs> at, at, at the end of the day, we can make the the user journey uh, just so much so much smoother. And uh, again, you know, if, and the last thing I'll, I'll leave you with is as we personify this and we talk about new data sources and body language. It's the equivalent of now with this t- this new data source, you can now see this person walk into your store, right? When we went online, we lost the ability to see them walk into our shop, but now we can. We can see them sit across from us. We can see that this individual is very clearly familiar with their own information. The way they're typing their and handling their personal data is very clearly familiar, they know it. And so if you were sitting in person across from that person, uh, somebody else who was applying for a loan and you saw that they knew what knew their data, you wouldn't ask them to submit a copy of their passport in addition to their driver's license. You'd just say, come on in. And that's, that's the value on the consumer side of, uh, it's, there's not just educating the consumer, it's also us being educated on what the consumer expects. And uh, that, that data source is very, very helpful for seeing these differences between generations.
1: In that context, I'm keen to go back to the streets of Leeds and hear a little bit more around uh, the UK consumer from that point of view.
0: I've done the email address thing, thing. (laughs) you know, get the free trial about five times and yeah. (laughs) I guess you should feel bad, but I think everyone does it. So then it's just like, yeah.
3: If people are absolutely skinned, they'll do anything to get the next meal. So I can imagine that
0: if if people are desperate, they would do that.
1: I used to live in the US and something that we would say sometimes is like, you don't steal from a mom and pop, but like from a Walmart, you know, Um, I think if people are in need and, the only reason that people commit crimes or do things that are considered illegal most of the time is because they're strapped or because they're in need or because they've got circumstances that force them to do most things that we would consider like morally dubious. Um, So I don't think, I'm not a big judger of people. Clearly, um, I guess a a perception there about justifying or validating um, certain actions and uh, another stat, um, you know, I said I wouldn't touch on too many, but I know in a a recent Consumer Pulse we had uh, we released. We spoke about one in seven UK consumers either admitting to fraud, committing fraud, or knowing someone who has. So clearly, uh, a fairly large challenge. We're going to talk a bit more about third-party fraud and other uh, technologies later. But Glyn, if I come back to you with the first-party lens, particularly in this current economic environment, you're working across sectors, but some of these trends come up in in similar ways across the different sectors.
3: Yeah, uh, absolutely. So for me, cost of living is is clearly a a massive challenge. Um, it's at what point a, a normally law-abiding citizen do they decide to commit commit first party fraud um, you know I, I get it the motivated, the skinned, the desperate they don't have a lot of cash uh, and then it, it's probably easy for them to rationalize you know we see big business making huge profits we see huge dividends getting paid so you know where's the victim? Where's the crime there you know why shouldn't I go and get a few extra extra quid if I can if I'm struggling financially. I, I know a guy, uh, an acquaintance on, on Facebook and he's a professional gambler and he's been very, very successful and he, he's made money from, from the gambling companies and they've, you know, they've shut his accounts down. So prior to major horse racing events, he openly advertises on Facebook to say, give me access to your bank account I'll pay you 150 pounds and then I can go off and, and do the gambling and, and place you know bet, bets on the horses. So in that scenario everyone's potentially a winner because somebody's getting 150 quid for their for their bank account access. Um, we've probably heard lots of story of, of, of bust out fraud within banking. you know people take on a credit card, they pay it, they pay well they look really good for a period of time they'll get the credit line increased, they may take a personal loan and then they'll, they'll bust out and take as much money as, as, as possible. But we also see this in, in the telco sector where um, somebody comes in a fraudster, probably first party fraud, uh, comes in a, a, at a low level, they take on a SIM only deal. So it's relatively low risk for the, for the telco provider. The person pays it month after month after month, at which point they're, they're eligible for a, for a handset they then apply for a thousand pound handset, disappear, never pay a penny more. So there's lots and lots of examples. And I think we as, as, as TU, and because we work across lots of sectors and lots of clients, you know, we, we can see that and how, you know, these fraud MOs are consistently used across the different sectors. So for me to be really interesting whether, and this is probably a, a project that we could pick up, if we could maybe get some fraud from the banking sector, fraud from government, fraud from, from insurance or telco, and bring it all together,
1: are we seeing common people committing fraud across these, these different sectors? We wanted to talk about some of the responses. So Harriet, Glenn, I'm not sure who wants to pick this up, but maybe Harriet, you've, you've heard Glenn talk about some of those um, challenges. So, so what sort of responses are available um, in terms of perhaps maybe in the, um, Gray area of affordability challenges, as Glyn spoke about, and maybe where it's fraud.
0: Yeah, so I guess the challenge with with first party, and you know, I massively sometimes dumb down fraud prevention, and it's the game of just trying to decipher good from bad, and you know, and that's essentially what my team help help our clients do. But I guess with first party, that scale isn't necessarily explicitly good and bad. It's intent versus. No, no intent and you're therefore trying to predict intention um, and I guess the the game is about like you say reducing that that gray area in between and trying to get really clear as to where those pots sit for for, for no intent to pay for example um you know the challenge is there is that you know what you guys see on an application form is 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 largely limited you know to what you know about them at that point in time so what we've seen for Us with no intent to pay is looking broader across the bureau, um, that that broader view of of a consumer's credit file does allow us to start tapping into um, those or trying to get a lens on that intent layer. Um, So, you know, looking at things like, for example, you know, the number of surnames at a specific address where somebody resides, you know, that's not something that you'd necessarily look at from a direct application perspective, but as we can look at that across the Bureau, um, you know that's uh, an attribute around somebody that might make them more, might mean they're in a living situation where they're perhaps struggling a bit, a bit more and therefore more, um, more tempted by uh, first party fraud if they are struggling as, as per what we heard on there. So uh, I think that definitely that broader view of a consumer and not just single organization views or single sector views of an individual is really important with regards to the first party challenge um, mules is you know if you can't do a, a panel uh, on fraud at the moment and not talk about money mules given everything that's going on there that's almost like more complex because you've got the intent layer but then you've got the kind of witting unwitting element to mules as well as to you know okay i might be opening an account for a to to, 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 to um co- Move uh, money through, but you might not necessarily know the the scale of that as a as, as as a crime. You might know it's maybe not the best thing to be doing, but you might not have any idea that it's it's full on. Um, money laundering and that you potentially lose all of your bank accounts it could ruin your life as a result of it um, and trying to predict that is even more complex And as I said earlier you know, that is something we're trying to do at point of application is how do we help you segment so that you can try and get ahead of educating those people who you know might be doing it unwittingly might not have they've got the intent there so you, you can't really predict on that but you need to tap into that witting, unwittingness to bring that education forward so that they are fully informed about the, um, the magnitude of what they're Considering to do.
1: Yeah, what what are we seeing in terms of third party trends? But perhaps may, perhaps major on more. You know, how how are you seeing uh, clients and sectors respond to those challenges?
3: Yeah, uh, so I, I think on there we, we heard, and for me, let's not get too um, uh, kind of concerned about the definition. So a fraudster might steal my identity with the intention of impersonating me to then take over my account. So. You know what? What kind of fraud is that? To me, it's just fraud. We need to try and try and deal with it. Um, a really good user example, a user case that that we've been working on with with a client is in the is in the wealth space, and a older gentleman, not online, not using the internet at all. Um, a fraudster's overtaken his account, taken over his account. They've set up online access to that account, and then they've attempted to extract money, extract money from 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 an investment. Um, the good news is they already using our bank verification solution and at that point bank verification said there's a suspect transaction here the bank account does not belong to the policyholder so the, the, the transaction is stopped, fantastic. The client then takes the fraudster down a manual review process so the fraudster is encouraged to send in documentation so they send in a forged driving license, a, uh, a forged passport somebody makes a very very subjective decision and says yeah this looks to be fine let's allow the money to go out so in that scenario the frauds have got away with with many many tens of thousands of pounds so thinking about that that interaction when you're online well you you need an id so you need a name and address you need a, a, a date of birth in that scenario you need an email you need a mobile you've got the bank account as Devon alluded to, you've got the physical act of, of key in the application form, and then you've got the, the liveness, the, the biometrics of the individual. So for me, the how are clients deal, dealing with these <laughs> solutions? It's very much about how do we layer in these, these different point solutions to ideally stop fraud at, at the front door. But if a fraudster does happen to get into the house, how do we then put additional steps in place to stop them as they're, as they're completing a, uh, a, a transaction? In this particular scenario, we've, we've subsequently gone back and we've looked at the, the email address, we've looked at the mobile uh, number that the fraudster was using, and in both scenarios we'd, we would have flagged them as being high risk. So there are multiple opportunities, multiple touch points to actually say, right, we've got a, a fraudster here, you know, let, let's stop the, uh,
1: stop the transaction. Cool, thanks, Lynn. Um, you spoke a lot about those multiple layers um, and, and some of the old technologies and new technologies, I guess. So, so Devin, if I come back to you, you spoke about a, a bit about behavior and started introducing that concept to the, to, to, to the group earlier. Um, can you go into that a little bit more in terms of those technologies and perhaps how that's addressing some of the challenges in terms of getting into the front door uh, that Glenn referred to,
2: absolutely. So earlier I mentioned we have the what and we have the who, and now we can see the how. And in this arms race against fraudsters, right, it's it's who's ahead. And right now we have a, a new technology, an emergent technology that allows us to have an edge on these individuals. And and what that means is uh, when you when you think about human behavior, right, that's a, it's a complex mosaic and. Uh, even on my face right now, there's 42 different muscles moving, and you are acutely in tune with how people behave and what that means to you in person. We now see that, as I mentioned earlier online, hundreds of signals, two to four hundred behavioral signals every single time somebody walks up to the front door. And you can see the good clearly and you can see the bad clearly, but more importantly, as we as this as we evolve, right, we can now see that when we see risky behavior and we really look at it. We can see behaviors that are unique to a fraud ring. So the person, personifying this, the equivalent of smash and grab people or smash and grab thieves, coming in, moving quickly and moving out. We can see the equivalent of, uh, I, I think, uh, the more crafty fraudsters who are uh, walking in up to your store, they're looking uh, for weaknesses, they're not committing fraud yet. And when they do, they're going to do it in a very intentional way. They're going to have, oftentimes, with especially with synthetic fraud, they have all the information they need, and they move in slowly. They move in very intelligently, uh, and that's a low. We call it low familiarity behavior. Very different than fraud rings. And then thirdly, uh, bot behavior. It's it's non-human. So the way bots move, the how fast they move, bot scripts uh, is is radically different than any type of human behavior, good or bad. And uh, for example. They type at speeds that are not humanly possible for most, for anyone. And uh, so now that we can see those different behaviors, we can craft much more dynamic fraud strategies. And uh, an example that that I'll give is, um, and this is the exciting part about emergent technologies, right, is uh, we discover new things every single month or every single quarter. Uh, This summer we analyzed data from our clients and what we observed is Before a bot attack happened, every single time, 100% of the times that we saw it, every time we saw a bot attack, the days leading up to it, we saw a spike in what we call that low-familiarity behavior. So we saw someone come up to the front door, look for weakness, really intentionally avoiding the smash-and-grab approach that a fraud ring would exhibit. Uh, Then they write their bot script, and days later they deploy their bot attack. We see very similar, like you do see low-familiarity that preempts say, fraud ring attacks. And further than that, we also see that when we look at the behavioral profile of this, that these attacks last for 33 hours on average, and then they disappear. So it's right out of Sun Tzu's handbook, The Art of War, right? You move quick, you move out, and it's a very complex division of labor, and we've never been able to see it before now. And so with that, pre-submit or that top of funnel information, the fraud strategy, it can not just be keep out the good or the bad, but how do we adapt to what types of good and bad? And so uh, I mean, that's, that's where we're at now.
0: So I hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode as much as we enjoyed doing the panel discussion at the summit. It was a really interesting discussion and I know from feedback we've had since that it really resonated with a lot of people in the audience from various different sectors and various different roles. So if you do want to follow up on anything you've heard today, please reach out to us. Our details can be found in the bio and watch out for the next episode of this podcast. Thank you.
1: This podcast was produced by TransUnion, a global insights and analytics company. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of TransUnion, and TransUnion is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast.